Fill to Capacity, Crazy Good Stories and Timely Topics, Podcast for people too stubborn to quit and too creative not to make a difference, inspiring, irreverent, and informative. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Pat Benincasa, and welcome to Phil to Capacity. Today's episode, Suicide Prevention, A Journey from the Edge, Circle with Chris Shaw. And before I go any further, I want to say that speaking about suicide and mental health challenges may be painful or difficult for some of our listeners. Please know that our discussion will be respectful and compassionate. Thank you. Chris and I will be in conversation for about 30 minutes. Then we invite our circle to ask questions or make comments. Welcome, Chris. Will you tell us your story and what is the heart and mind connection? All right. Thank you, Pat, for having me here. Boy, uh, tell you my story. This is a four-hour podcast. Is that correct? (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) Let me start from the second question, Pat. The, uh, The Heart and Mind Connection is a mental health advocacy and education nonprofit. We call it a peer run because all of the people from the board of directors down through all of our employees self identify as having their own lived experience with either mental illness, substance use disorder, or a combination of the two. And why we think that's important in this ongoing battle with the epidemic of suicide and suicide prevention is that there are a lot of people, a lot of very smart people out there, uh, a lot of very passionate people in this field working to figure out how we change this trajectory of numbers that has continued to go up over the past many years of the losses by suicide. And yet what I've come to find in my own life is that where people feel that they have the most connection is when they're able to talk to somebody who's actually been there before, somebody who has that lived experience, who walks that walk, shall we say. So when we formed this organization in 2017, young lady by the name of Christine Wainwright and myself, we were in the midst of just being certified as in the state of Minnesota and uh, around the country, uh, what is called certified peer support specialists. And uh, going through that class, we met and we began working for another organization in the state who was also listed as peer run. But they were a rural organization and really did most of their work in the rural areas. And being based out of the Twin Cities area, we thought we have a, a lot of opportunity here to get in front of people, especially during legislative sessions, being at the Capitol, kind of holding hands with legislation and walking it through the process and really, you know, just sitting down in a legislator's office you know, instead of sending legislation and letters and things like that saying, we really want this to happen, to be able to sit in front of them. And I'll I'll never forget the first time I sat down in somebody's office as a state senator, and we were talking about this legislation to pass funding for this uh, concept called peer respite housing. And I, I always, when I when I do those legislative visits, I get all dressed up in my monkey suit and everything and a tie and everything. I'm looking good. And, and he's looking at me like, well, this sounds very interesting, but I'm not quite sure who who is it that would actually benefit from this. And I said, well, right off the top of my head, I know this one guy with two thumbs. And I went and pointed at myself. And he was like, Oh, oh, oh I, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't even realize you were mental. And I was like, that's okay. I didn't realize you were an idiot till you opened your mouth. But it's amazing that the people who are making these decisions yeah. at a legislative level very seldom 
have any type of lived experience uh, of their own of dealing with a family member or someone close who is navigating the mental health system. And so to them, they're really just looking at dollars and cents and not the impact. And some of these things don't take a whole heck of a lot of money to be effective. And I get it. They're come at from every corner of the state, from everyone in their jurisdiction, wanting different things done. Hey, we need a new ball field and we need a statue of the Jolly Green Giant built. That would be great for our community and things like that. And it's like, how about we dig in a little bit to give kids a place to go after school when they're latchkey kids and they don't have anyone at home and they feel really alone to feel like they belong and have some purpose in life. Putting a face on some of these issues, I think is what has been one of our biggest hopes in doing this from that standpoint of lived experience. When we talk about lived experience and and what that means, that goes back to, for me, a long way back to my early childhood growing up in New York City. Now, there's probably people who have heard the term and maybe aren't familiar with it, but trauma, I think everyone understands what trauma is. Although for me, even though I was a military veteran, I didn't serve in any combat roles. I always believed that PTSD was reserved for those people who had seen combat and the effects of war. But the more I am in this field and learn more, I realize that trauma is really a multitude of things. And when we talk about youth in our country, trauma has taken on a new terminology, and that's ACEs, meaning adverse childhood experiences. And what that is, is the trauma that young people face prior to the age of 18. And it's really interesting if if anybody ever wants to see just what that slate of components is, you can just Google ACEs test and it will pull up the very simple 10 question test that once a child may have been experiencing some hardships, has been portraying troubling behaviors, they can take this test with their doctor or so, whoever they're working with. And it's questions like prior to the age of 18, had you experienced any unwanted sexual attention prior to the age of 18? Had you suffered any physical assault from a loved one prior to the age of 18? Did you have a parent who was incarcerated? Were you homeless? Did you experience food insecurity? And these 10 questions can give doctors and therapists a pretty good insight based on research as to, you know, if a kid has one or two of these, what their risk factor might be for the development of a mental health condition. If they have four to six of them, now we're looking at a a different picture of just how troubled they might be in the likelihood of developing something. If they have seven or more, these are kids we really look at as, wow, we are sitting on kind of a ticking time bomb because more than likely one of these things that they've experienced are going to begin to affect the development of their thought processes around relationships, around their own worth, their value, things like that. And and how can we steer that? One thing that we know is that of the people who will develop a mental health condition in their lifetime, and right now, past pandemic, we're sitting about at a number of about one in four Americans who on a daily basis are dealing with what would be a diagnosable level of some mental health challenge, whether that's depression or anxiety or bipolar, schizophrenia, substance use disorder, drug addiction, one in four. And of those one in four, 50% of them will begin to develop signs and symptoms of that illness by age 14, 75% by age 24. So if we look at that period in, in a youth's life between, say, 10 and 25, and the challenging thing is, you know, what we're talking about is brain disorders. 
the human brain doesn't fully develop till about the age of 25. And yet from 14 to 24, we're talking about uh, 75% of those one in four are beginning to experience pretty severe and dislocating type of experiences in their life, whether it be not understanding how to navigate relationships, having trouble concentrating, fear, paranoia. I mean, even kids, you know, we talk nowadays about kids as young as five and six who are reporting conditions that we can tell are anxiety. And a young kid in, in elementary school, they'll go to their nurse and say, yeah, I've got this really bad tummy ache. I don't know what it is. And the nurse might be, hey, so did you have the corn dogs today? Well, no, that's not what it was. Yeah. I just haven't, I, I don't know what it is. And find out it manifests in that physical way, even when they can't explain what it is that they're feeling. So I'd like to ask you on the opposite end, based on a quote by Glennon Doyle, quote, people who need help sometimes look a lot like people who don't need help. So will you speak to that? You know, it's interesting because in getting into this field and and doing this work, I'm both thrilled and and acknowledged by a multitude of some of the quotes and quips that share their space here. And sometimes it almost becomes overwhelming. But, you know, I think one of the best ones out there is that uh, not all diseases are visible. And what we're talking about is people walking around who on the outside look perfectly quote unquote normal and yet are dealing with a crap storm inside of their brain that keeps them from being able to, you know, have conversations to stay on track with something, to be able to explain something. And what the biggest part of it that I think is the most dangerous that we don't realize is part of what's going on inside of their brains are the lies that our brains tell us the constant lies of you're not good enough. No one cares about you. You are not wanted. You'll never amount to anything worthless, useless, pointless, hopeless, helpless. And that stigma, or as you had that mention in uh, your last show with Sue Ebner Holden from NAMI, is that when you break it down, you know, we've used this word stigma for so long to try and explain what it is. Really what it comes down to is, as she said, is we're talking about discrimination, discrimination on a level of, oh, you're different than I am. You can't do the things I can, but you look like you should be able to. And I, I think you're faking it. I think you're making this up to get out of work. You're lazy. And so we know that one of the biggest signs we see with people who are dealing with serious mental illness is isolation and pulling away from others for two reasons. One, I don't believe I'm worthy of other people's attention. And two, I'm so scared about what they might think about me if they knew what I'm feeling, thinking that I might lose my job, I might lose my relationship, I might be ostracized. And so it's easier for me to just pull away and be all by myself and try and deal with this alone, which we know is is about the worst thing somebody can do is separate themselves from others. Yeah. And it's that critical voice that just seems unrelenting. It just keeps bearing down. And if you're at a place in your life where something is going on that really shakes you to your foundation. It's like you're being boiled and emotional lead and you can't get a handle. You can't see the light. So Mm -hmm. it's that isolation. It's almost like a dynamic duet between the critical voice and then isolating yourself more. Yeah. And it's almost like you're like, well, if I just go isolate and keep myself away from everyone, maybe that'll give me time to figure it out. When I've found personally, it almost does the opposite in it allows me to just kind of stew in all of those uh, voices and all those feelings and all that negativity and just reinforce why I wouldn't reach out in the first place. Yep. 
one of the things we know from research also is that for people who begin to develop a mental health condition, it can be on average 10 years before that person will reach out for any kind of help. So if you think about that, 50% of people begin feeling signs and symptoms at age 14. If you imagine that time period between when a young person is 14 and 24, how long they're dealing with these feelings of worthlessness, uselessness, that nobody cares, that I'm all alone in this. And at that point where somebody finally, like I said, on average 10 years, might be in front of somebody who might help them, very often it isn't their choice. Yeah. Maybe their behavior has become challenging and the police have been called on them. And they're just trying to explain, no, I, I don't know what was going on. I feel like everybody was out to get me and I had to get away and uh, or, or worse. Well, let me ask you from a more of a macro view. When we talk about mental health challenges for teens, LGBTQ, elderly, veterans, different ethnic groups, are there similar red flags that all of these groups share? Fill to Capacity is brought to you by one of the most celebrated persons in history, Joan of Arc. How about carrying a bit of Joan's courage with you all the time? You can with the Joan of Arc scroll medal designed by award-winning artist Pat Benincasa. With loving attention to detail, Joan has banner in hand and is charging off the scroll-shaped medal with the words, Be at my side. This beautiful brass alloy medal is ideal for holiday or special occasion gifts. Don't wait. Capture a bit of history and inspiration today. Visit www.patbenincasa-art.com. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, I would say definitely are. And yet you hit the nail on the head with, with naming those different groups because each one of them holds their own set of risk factors that put them at a greater risk for developing mental health challenges, whether it be LGBTQ youth who feel very ostracized already and feel challenged about whether they have anybody that they can really talk to about it, that anybody really would understand where they're at. People who work in rural communities and, and older people have a set of risk factors around lack of access to easy care and also the stoicism that yeah. comes with age. Talk about people who are just like, you know what? Yeah, maybe it is full-blown schizophrenia or, or depression, but you know what? I'll man up. I'll take care of this. So this is what I do. I, I can't make yep. this anybody else's problem. And that's not what we're made to do. We're made to have other people in our lives to walk that walk with us. Kids, again, we say how much challenge there is for young people. If you think about the fact that young people struggle already with the idea that very little in their life do they have control over. Yes. And then perhaps then they begin developing a mental health challenge and all those things that they're told, because maybe it's not recognized as a mental health challenge, being told how to act, how to, uh, uh, to stop doing that, just get up off the couch and go outside. You're making too big a deal of this. Why always so much drama from you? And all those kind of things that make them feel like, wow, what I'm dealing with is both my own problem and why am I making a big deal of this? Because I'm told it's not a big deal. And yet, why do I feel so horrible? Yep. And that brings me to Susan Cain's book, Bittersweet. She has this quote, how can we live and work authentically in a culture of enforced positivity? Now, we're expected, as you say, to get over it when we're grieving or no matter what 
hellstorm is enveloping our life, we're supposed to be positive. Mm-hmm. And if you say anything otherwise, why are you so negative? Yeah. Do you think that our be positive no matter what attitudes creates this unreal vacuum? Yeah, I definitely can see that. And then I think we feel that the only way we're going to be accepted, whether it's in a job or in a relationship or in a parenting role or any of that, is if we fall in line with those directives that we've heard, even if we know in our heart that that's not realistic. I mean, it's not how I feel, but I feel like if I don't act that way, I'm not going to be accepted. And then the challenge I feel on my own is how do I do that? I have no clue how, how to get myself to that place. And so for me, one of those things that started in, in high school was alcohol use. Because it seemed to be some kind of an equalizer to where it numbed the pain I was feeling in my head and almost made me feel accepted. And it probably allowed me to then begin developing my sense of humor, to which also was a wall at that time uh, that I could deflect. I could deflect anything that came at me with humor And so if somebody tried to ask a serious question about where I was at or what I was doing or what was wrong with me, I could play it off with humor and kind of turn that conversation in a different direction. I'd be like, "Woo, thank you. I didn't have to actually talk about it. It got so key as a tool for me that it led to a career in comedy, which was both the highs and the lows of how I lived my life. I mean, I absolutely loved every minute that I was on stage. And then I would come off and be in the hotel room and go, why the hell were they laughing? I am so stupid. I'm so worthless. There's, I don't deserve any of that attention, but I got to buck up and paint the smile on my face and go do this again tomorrow. And I did that for 30 years. Another way of saying this, Chris, what comes to mind is that We don't have a space to feel what we feel. Mm -hmm. And so when we don't have a space, we make a space through drugs or alcohol or dangerous behaviors or doing things that when you're older and you look back, you think, oh, my God, what the hell did I do? You know, thank God you're still alive. But it is really about trying to carve out a space, a place to be. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah. And I I think you also hit it on the head with risky behavior, Pat, because one of the things that, you know, of of my diagnosis, bipolar disorder, unclear thinking, lack of logical thinking, and risk-taking behavior as a way to, you know, it's risky, so it it gives me that adrenaline push, which might overcome some of the depression I'm feeling. What we know right now is that, and this just changed, but for the last 10 years, suicide has been the second leading cause of death for youth in our country between the ages of 10 and 24, second only to accidental death. And when you think about accidents that youth of that age group might get into, car accidents, climbing rocks and falling off, other risky things, we could really look a little deeper into the fact that some of those might have been activities that a youth took on and said, Yeah, I know this is dangerous, but so what? If I don't live, I don't live. I'd like to shift gears a bit. A friend of mine, Chris Frickman, artist and art therapist who works with the Suicide Survivors Club said, quote, when speaking with someone who is struggling, it's important to listen and not take on their struggle. Hmm. Yeah. That's a biggie. Will you talk Mm -hmm. about that? That's a tough place to be. So one of the big classes, the most popular classes that we teach in our organization, the Heart and Mind Connection, is a class called Mental Health First Aid. And this is a course that was developed back in 2001 in Australia. And in 2008, it came over to the United States and was taken on by the National Council for Behavioral Health. And they rewrote the curriculum to westernize it and and fit with our American culture. And they have 
nine different modules of it, as you were talking about before, the different populations that have specific risks to themselves. So there is youth class, which is for people who work with youth, teachers, camp counselors. There's the adult. There is older adults. There is higher education. There is veterans. There is fire and EMS, police and corrections officers. There is rural communities. And then there's the new teen mental health first aid, which I'll talk about a little more later, that where we actually go into the classrooms and teach the teens how to see these signs and symptoms in their peers. One of the biggest things that I found so effective in these, there's an acronym that they use to be able to help people if they come upon somebody in crisis of what plan do I use to go through this? This acronym is the ALGE Mental Health First Aid Action Plan. And the plan is this, assess for risk of suicide or harm, listen non-judgmentally, give reassurance and information, encourage appropriate professional help, and encourage self-help and other self-strategies. All of them, excellent. And the nice thing is, is it's a non-linear plan. You, you don't have to do them exactly in order. But somebody asked me one time, Chris, if you can only have two of those, hmm. one or two of them, which ones would you have? And I said, no doubt, easily, L and G. I would listen and then give reassurance or information. Because sometimes, especially with youth, that's all they're looking for. So many times in this world right now, with everything going on and everything being thrown at kids, they just want to know that they, that they matter. Yes. That, that, they, that they're heard, that what they have to say means something to someone else, that they're not just shoved off as, ah, oh, you're just a kid. You don't know what you're talking about. Yep. We've got some brilliant kids out there who are being kind of brushed under the rug just because we're all moving so fast and we just don't have time to listen to everybody who says something to us. And that's a society change that we yep. have to come about with. But how do we slow ourselves down to take that five minutes or at least even if we don't have that five minutes, not dismiss that young person. Yeah. Say, you know what? I really want to talk to you. I'm headed to a meeting right now, but would you be available sometime today from five to six? Because if you just say to a kid, yeah, I, I can't talk now. Let's talk some yep. other time. That just sounds like you're blowing them off. And we all know this. If we don't put a timeline on it, that later on never comes. And in that time, they sit with those feelings of, oh, just one more person in my life blowing me off. I'm really worthless. And those feelings that are associated with this illness. And let me tell you, Pat, one of the greatest efforts I think we do as an organization and most people in this field is we have to get people believing that what we're talking about is an illness. Yes, that it's not a series of bad choices, that it's not poor diet, that just like you wouldn't tell somebody who's laying on the couch after chemotherapy treatment, really, you're still laying around? Why don't you just get up and go out and, and cut the grass or something like that? Why is that okay to say to someone who has taken every bit that they have of courage to share that they're dealing with something that is really scary to them. And yet we treat it as, yeah, that's your choice. You know, you're, you're not depressed, whatever you're depressed about. It's not that big a deal. Stop being so anxious over things. Hey, you what? You're still taking that insulin for that diabetes. Yeah. I can't believe it. It goes back to that American individualism that be a tough guy. You don't have to piss and moan about what's going on. What's yeah. your problem? And if you, you're somebody who has a job and you're like, hey, you got a job. Everything's fine. What the hell are you talking about? It's like this constant dismissal of really connecting with someone who's in deep pain. But then again, if we as a culture shift and really start to listen, we have to look at ourselves. I really think this is a compassion issue and an empathy issue. Put yourself in that person's shoes that you can't get off the couch. What does that feel like? Instead of get the hell off the couch, come on, get yeah. with it. So the, it's like we have to come to terms with the heart, with empathy, with compassion. 
Well, and I think that can start very easily with language. I mean, just changing the way that we address somebody who comes at us talking about what they're experiencing. Because again, that person who, who's dealing with the mental health challenge, depending on their age, might not even know how to verbalize what yes. it is they're experiencing. Yes. So I don't know. It's just my my head is a mess and, and I can't think straight and, and words are coming out, but I don't even know what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, Brene Brown has a great line in one of her TED Talks and it's called Empathy Versus Sympathy. And one of the greatest things I took from that was is that she says, you know, when somebody shares something extremely vulnerable with you, you don't have to have the exact right words to connect with that person. Sometimes it is plenty to be able to say to them, wow, I don't even know how to respond to that. I'm just so glad you shared that with me. Yeah. And then how can I support you? Because people want to feel supported. I know when I was at my worst, sometimes people say, you need help, Chris, man, you really need some help. And I'm like, no, I don't need help. Okay. I don't need any help. But if somebody were to say, how can I support you? Everybody wants to feel like they're supported. You don't have to agree with my choices. You don't have to understand fully where I've been in my life, but where you're meeting me right now, is there something you can do to help me make it from today to tomorrow? I want to shift this conversation to those people who are dealing with a loved one who has attempted suicide. Let's talk about those folks for a moment. How can they find help for themselves, like how to cope with this situation without being sucked into that vortex of panic? Well, I think one thing, it's hard for people, especially if it's a family member of someone who's made an attempt, it's hard for them to not go inward and say, okay, what did I do here to cause this? Now we talked about adverse childhood experiences, things that can bring about those mental health challenges. But we also know that in so many situations, we're dealing with an illness. Yeah. Okay. Nobody who has a family member who gets cancer goes, oh my gosh, what did I do that gave them cancer? We just don't do that. And, and we need to stop doing that about mental health. Is it some of it genetic? Sure. But so is cancer. So is other illnesses. I always talk about this uh, thing. It's hard to see if you're not online, if you're just listening. But if, if you imagine having your arms straight out from you on either end, and on one end is the past, and the other end is the future, the past is where depression develops, and the future is where anxiety lives. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is if you think about, we had mentioned earlier this sense of lack of emotional control is all the things that go on in our life that we feel like, man, if I could just do this, things would be different. If I could just, so many people who work in social services and child welfare and, and with the homeless and things like that say, man, I've got this person sitting right in front of me and I know exactly what they need. If I could just do this thing for them, but they're up against systems of bureaucracy and things that they can't move. And and so they go, wow, I'm so close to the, to the goal line with this person, but I can't help them get over that and how frustrating that is. Yes. Well, if you think about this whole thing about ACEs and, and such, when I say depression is in our past, think about every single thing that has happened to us that we have absolutely no control of going back and changing. So for me, that looked like an alcoholic, abusive father, assault, bullying in school, stranger sexual assault at 13, shame, guilt, loss, abuse, neglect, all those things where you go, God, if I could just go back and change that, things would be different now, but but we can't on the other side of the coin in our future where we have anxiety waiting for us. This is where everything that is to come. Now, 
everybody gets anxious and everybody gets nervous and things like that. I've got a first date. Oh, I've got a test. I'm starting a new job. I've got an interview. Those things feel anxious, but most of us have a level of resiliency that allows us to look at really hard things and talk ourselves back down that scale. If this was a scale from one to a hundred out here, but for people like me who have anxiety disorder, one to a hundred is one step. And what's at a hundred is the worst possible case scenario I can imagine. So I don't go, oh, this is a little bad, but if I do this or that or that, I'll come back down. I just go from, I've got a test. Oh, I'm, I'm going to fail that test. And if I fail that test, I'm, I'm going to fail this class. And then I'll fail this grade. And then I'll be in summer school. And then I won't be able to work. And then I won't have any money. And then my parents will kick me out of the house. And then I'll be homeless and living on their bridge. Wow. That's a lot of weight that we put on ourselves and not allow ourselves to work our way back down from that yeah in the middle pat in the middle between those two things is this small little space that space is right now this very moment some people call it mindfulness you know how we're mindful of where we are in the present how hard is it anyway even without dealing with a mental health condition to keep ourselves away from falling back into the things that have happened or worrying ahead to the things that might come. I mean, we have a conversation, Pat, you're telling me about your day and things like that. And I'm looking at you and I'm nodding my head. And yet the whole time I'm going, "Mm, milk, bread, eggs, cheese, got to pick that stuff up. Got to take Nick to hockey practice. And then I got to, who's going to watch the dog over the weekend when we go out? Oh, I'm sorry. What'd you say, Pat? (laughs) Now, what if in those five minutes, Pat had just gotten up enough courage to be able to tell me because she trusted me enough that, hey, I'm having a really hard time. I'm really struggling and I need some help and I don't know what to do. But my mind was not here in the moment. So when we're talking with people, anybody, but especially people we know that might be struggling somewhat, how do we keep ourselves for whatever period of time it is, if it's three minutes in that moment, yeah, not letting our stuff take us out backwards, take us out to the future. How do we listen non-judgmentally without having these preconceived notions of what you're telling me? How do we understand the difference between giving someone information and giving somebody advice? Because far too often, especially young people, they don't want to hear, oh, that's what you're dealing with. Well, let me tell you what I did when I was a kid. This is how you get out of that. Rub some dirt in it. And, you know, being 100% present, listening to everything somebody tells us before we reply. Far too many people think that listening is the act of waiting to talk instead of taking in information, processing what we've just heard. And that takes me back to that Brene Brown statement. Wow, I don't even know how to respond to that. I just know that I'm really glad you shared that with me. So Chris, I want to go one step further and talk about those left behind when someone has succeeded in ending their life. The shock waves of constant what if, what if, or if only I had, you know, I should have, but are devastating. How do friends, families, how do they cope with this? Is there help for those that have been left behind? Well, the sad thing is, is that we're not talking about one or two people. No. When we talk about the numbers that we know, and, and for the people who aren't fully aware of what we're up against as a country, I always quote these statistics and right right now I'm doing 2019 because I remember them off the top of my head, but I want everyone to consider this, that in 2019 in the United States, there were 16,425 murders. So intentional death by another person. In 2019 in the United States, 
there were 47,511 suicides. In that year, in 2019, there were also slightly more than 72,000 deaths by drug overdose. And now, especially with the pandemic, that number has gone up in, in 2020. We lost 93,000 people. In 2021, we lost 106,000 people. It's amazing to me when people say, because one of the things that we do is we, uh, we work with an organization in St. Paul called the Steve Rumler Hope Network, who has a grant through the federal government to be able to provide training and free naloxone kits, which naloxone is the opioid overdose reversal drug to put those in people's hands. And I, ha I have people actually say to me, they go, Chris, you're giving out all this money in this drug to what? To just keep a drug addict alive so he can go do drugs again? How does that make sense? And I love that stupid question because I will tell them, well, research shows that a person has 0% chance of recovery if they're dead. So I'm going to keep somebody alive 100 times and hope that that 101st time, they're ready to make that change in their life. When we talk about suicide survivors, it's one of the hardest things that I have come to face in the time that I've been doing this work. So my last suicide attempt was September of 2015. And just a little background. First off, what I tell people is that even though here I was, I was a stand-up comedian. I was out there getting up on stage for an hour a night, telling jokes, making hundreds of people laugh. And that wasn't enough for me. I didn't understand why they laughed. I thought there was pity. And then I'd get off stage and I'd just go back to my room and I'd hide and I'd be like, I am such a loser. Why, why do they want me to do this? But I tell people that I lived for 30 years with two beliefs that ruled my decision-making. And those beliefs were, one, nobody understands what I'm going through. You don't get it. People would ask, what's going on? You, you don't get it, man. You just don't get it. And two, nobody would care if they did. And when those two thoughts are constantly running through your brain, it's pretty easy when we look back at that statistic about why people will wait on average 10 years before they will reach out for any kind of help. That stigma yeah. that you feel, not only about yourself, about that you're not worthy of people's love and attention and care, and that we're so worried about how other people will perceive us that the whole house of cards is going to come down. And so we fake our way through, we paint these smiles on. The interesting thing is, this is not always just people who have had a hard life. We're talking about an illness. Yeah. Think about how many people who have died of lung cancer who never smoked once in their life. And people think, well, that's an anomaly, you know? So don't you have had to had things go bad in your life for you to want to drink yourself into a stupor every day? No, we're talking about illnesses. And not until we begin to look at mental illness and substance use disorder on an even level, are we going to get the kind of respect and care for people in these situations that they deserve that will change them coming forward when they're struggling? Most people don't have trouble when they break their arm coming forward. You don't see anybody with their arm dangling going, no, 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 I'll hide that. That's nothing. Don't worry about it. Don't look at that. Do you think that the insurance industry has a hand in that? That people have to really make a case for themselves to get mental illness help through their insurance companies, what's covered and what's not covered? They seem it, to be the gatekeepers. It's and horrible. With that, and with that gatekeeping, it, it, it creates a stigma that, well, are you going to really ask for that? You know, buck up, buddy. It's not that bad. Your insurance won't cover this. So I think that 
what we're talking about, as you're saying, is so complex, but the physical reality is the insurance companies don't help this. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, and, and to get back to your original question as well about survivors, family members who yeah. are trying to navigate surviving a loss there, far too many times when I talk to family members, I hear two things. I hear one, there were no signs. We had no idea it was coming. No, we're doing screenings of a film, a documentary film, where this young lady came to town in February. But I, I highlight it because she's so opposite of me. I grew up in Lower Town, Manhattan. My father was gone after he was abusive. My mother worked two jobs. There was physical bullying, assault, things like that. This young lady grew up in a beautiful part of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Her parents were together. They had money. She was an A student. She was a model, a cheerleader. And what people don't get is, is that, well, how the heck did she develop a mental illness with all that going for her? Because it's an illness. It yeah. doesn't ask you, oh, Andrew Bourdain, we forgot you were rich. Kate Spade, we forgot you were famous. You shouldn't have gotten this illness. It doesn't care about your socioeconomic status. It's an illness you get. And so part of the problem with the system at large, okay, a couple things. One, we know right now we're way short on staff. The yeah. pandemic decimated our ability to keep people in positions for therapy and things. It also changed the way that people receive those services. When it went to video appointments, it was hailed as this great new way to do it. And yet when you're talking about somebody who has fears and paranoia and struggles with connection, and you're telling me the only way I can see my doctor is on this small video screen, no, thank you. And so we lost people who were getting care in the first place. We are so lacking in professionals and we have so grown the number of people asking for help that it's going to take five, 10 years to catch up and get enough professionals trained to be out in front of people. And that's for us that work in this field of advocacy, this is going to be a scary time because we're going to see a lot of people who feel like they've been left along the wayside or that my situation is not nearly as bad as that person's situation. So I'm not even going to go to the doctor because I don't deserve it as much as they do. And then when we talk about the families who have lost somebody, and when they talk about missing those signs and symptoms, much like with Emma Benoit from this film, My Ascension, you wouldn't have seen them because she was doing everything that you would have thought a high schooler would have dreamed to do, yeah. to be out there in the public eye. And yet we don't realize that that pressure that young people put on themselves to achieve and that I have to be the best person because other people are counting on me. And where's my outlet yeah. when I feel like I can't be that person anymore? Very often drugs, alcohol, risky behavior, things like that then become their only connection to something else because I'm so yeah. damn scared. If I tell somebody what I'm dealing with, I'm going to lose this, this sense of who I am in other people's eyes. And so for parents after these losses and whether they saw it coming or not, I, I have a, a great friend down in Wilmer who lost his daughter. They had been working with her and a therapist and hospitalization. And they thought things were maybe moving in a better direction. And then when they lose that child, the devastation, yeah. what didn't I do? What did I miss? Who, who am I to, to think that I can parent my other children? I know a woman who is a therapist who lost her son to suicide and then was really stuck in a struggle of how do I sit down with other people looking for help yeah. when I couldn't even figure out how to help my own child? So the devastation that ripples out, there's a film from the same people who did the My Ascension film was the Kevin Hines story before called Suicide, the Ripple Effect. And the term, the ripple effect, 
talks about that for every one person that dies by suicide, that approximately 130 other people are directly affected. And if you think that I don't even know 130 people, well, they interviewed the Coast Guard guy who pulled him out of the river. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and was one of only 34 people who've ever lived doing that. So the Coast Guard guy, the emergency room nurse, who was the first on scene when he came to the hospital, his high school principal, who he was two years out of high school, all these people's lives who were forever changed because of that death. And thankfully for him, that survival story. But if you think that for every one person that dies by suicide, there will be at a minimum 25 people who will make an attempt and survive. For every one person who dies by suicide, there will be approximately 250 people who have strong thoughts of a plan and are considering taking their lives. In a year in the United States, we're talking about a little over a million people who are thinking about that they don't know how to go on and that the only way to end their pain is to end their life. They're everywhere. And like you said earlier, they're standing next to you. They're on the bus next to you. They're walking around the mall because they don't want to go home. So they're just walking around the mall. They're everywhere. Chris, those statistics are crushing. And then there are statistics that show there is starting to be a generational shift in how mental illness is perceived. Millennials and then the Generation Zs, they're much more accepting and knowledgeable about mental illness than previous generations. And for me, that is such a hopeful sign. These younger kids, they get it. They get, they understand. I believe they are. And I believe what we're starting to see, especially in the work that we're doing and our ability to talk to schools and convince schools that bringing in these kinds of trainings, this teen mental health first aid, where we go right to the kids and say, it's one thing when adults are looking and seeing signs and symptoms and trying to respond. What is taken as acceptable is when, and this is why our organization is what we are, a peer-run organization. It's when your peers recognize those signs and symptoms, when other students can see, hey, I noticed you're really down today, and I missed you at football practice yesterday. What's going on? Let's talk about it, and let me help you get to a trusted adult. That's where the trajectory is going to change. But you're right. It is the beginning. I see, you know, some light at the end of the tunnel that kids are starting to say, you know what? Nobody is going to do this for us. We have to take this on ourselves. So we see things like student-led support groups in schools. There's a couple called HEART, Help Every At-Risk Teen, that is active at the Moundsview and Irondale and Wayzata School District. A couple of years ago, there was a start of a movement called the Green Bandana Club. And what it is, uh, lime green, really bright bandanas. This was started between the University of Wisconsin-Madison and NAMI, Wisconsin, where they would train students in the schools. And then those students would wear those bandanas either around their neck, on their belt loop, on their bag. And the word went out to the whole school that, hey, if you're struggling and you need to talk to somebody or you need some resources or help, look for somebody with one of those bright green bandanas. Those people get it and they can help you. We're working with some young ladies over in Wisconsin who started something called the Kindness Crew. Kindness can be the simplest thing. You know, people say, well, you know, I don't have any education in, in mental health and I don't have any experience or anything like that. Hey, have you ever smiled at somebody? Have you ever asked somebody, how are you? Then you have experience. And if you truly cared when you said that, you are five steps ahead of so many of the other people out there who think they have an answer about what to do about mental illness. Chris, I'm going to stop you there. Do that. But I'd like to open it up to our listeners. 
Helen? I like the bright green bandana and those help groups. And I'm going to say in Canada, there's a day in January that Bell Canada puts through Let's Talk. And they feature prominent people. Like one year they had one of the Olympians who got the gold. And she struggled. And she was the hostess. They cover any cost for the call if necessary. So this is encouraged. And this has been maybe the last, I'm going to say, four or five years. But again, thank you. Yeah, I think it's been amazing just over the last, say, two Olympics, where we've had gymnasts, uh, Michael Phelps, people like that come out and openly say, okay, see, now that I got the gold medal, now will you listen to me about the fact that I'm struggling with this and not just the people who didn't get a medal and then go, oh, well, of course you didn't win. You're saying you have a mental illness. That's not what it's about. Hi, this is Christine. I work with Chris on a regular basis and I'm always amazed at how he's able to bring things to the forefront without being overly exaggerated because we work with this every single day. And I'm up here also, so I definitely have my struggles, but I really feel that, you know, the community and and just doing whatever you can to where people are at is what you can do instead of saying, I don't know what to do. If you're just there, it makes all the difference. Yeah. Thanks for making that point, Christine. It's frustrating when you get into this kind of work, you think I want to wrap my hands around. I want to save everybody now. And it's hard to just say, okay, that's not realistic. Where do we just start chipping away? It doesn't seem like enough. But every one person that we get to understand this differently than they did before, every one person that realizes that they're not alone, that there are people that they can talk to at any time, that's how this is going to work. It's going to be a slow process, but it's it's not going to be any process if we don't take that one step at a time. Hi, my name is Kyle. I had Pat as a teacher at Perpich a couple years back. I just wanted to say uh, I really thought this was an incredibly important discussion. Um, It's something that means a lot in my heart. I've experienced two very close friends who are now gone from this in the past 10 months. And uh, ever since both of those have happened, I've just been trying to read up and trying to do as much better as I can to try to prevent something from this happening, no matter what, because... I don't know. It's definitely a pandemic in itself that we're not doing enough about. Kyle, thanks for both being here and sharing that story. If you uh, have any interest in working even on a volunteer basis on some of the events and things we have going on, we would love to have you alongside of us. Absolutely. Hi, Sarah. Hi. My experience with all of this has been that in the last few years, I've known three young men who have taken their lives. And the numbers that you quoted, Chris, about how many people are affected, I can well believe. The effect is profound, long lasting, really doesn't seem to ever go away. The feeling of shock, the feeling of helplessness, at first wondering, wasn't there something more I could do? And at some point having to accept that in these cases anyway, probably not. But I think in addition to that, what I found extremely disturbing was that I wanted to get involved. I live in Buffalo, New York, and we have a crisis services over the phone help. And I thought, this is something I could do. So I filled out an application and I had an interview and I went in and I talked with them. And in the end, they told me, no, you're not right. Okay, I'm not right. I can't do this. I don't really know what else to do. I was extremely upset. And I thought, I can do something. I mean, I can answer a phone. I have empathy. I Yeah. But I think what you said, Chris, about kindness is what I'm going to take away from this, because this is something I can do. And the fact of the matter is, as you said, you don't know who is dealing with this and who is suffering. One of these young men was a stand-up comedian. I mean, who knew? I didn't know that he was unhappy. He put on a happy face. So, yeah. 
being kind and smiling and being available to whoever you run across in your best possible way, I think is for now all I can think to do. And it's not nothing. Nope, not at all. Because, you know, that one greeting to somebody, one of the things I talk about in the mental health first aid classes, in my experience now, both from it being me when I was younger and now seeing it when I'm in schools is I could walk through any school in this country at passing time and I could show you kids who are struggling because the the signs and symptoms are all the same. They're shuffling with a very small gait, probably not moving their arms. They're looking down. They're not making eye contact, walking really close to the lockers. Maybe is that person really deep in thought? Possibly. But I would still walk up to that person and stop them and go, hey, just noticed you seemed a little down. Something going on you'd like to talk about. But even a hello to somebody who feels invisible. I felt 100% invisible. That's why I would go walk around the mall because I was like, somebody, God, please, somebody notice me. Because I felt like there was nothing about me that was ever going to be recognized. And I was so alone in what I was feeling with. We just want to be accepted as somebody who's struggling with something just like a bunch of other people are. So don't give up on the use of your empathy. I would say reach out to NAMI, N-A-M-I, in your area. They have programs where you can get involved in doing outreach. The fact that you want to be involved says everything I need to know about you. Okay. Anyone else? I'll jump in, Pat. I am so privileged to be here in the presence of all of you and be witness to listening to your stories and interest in advocacy. It's how we can pull together resources and the wisdom to make a difference. And smiling is always good. And peer review is always good, you know, peer check-ins. I think the more we talk about mental health, as an illness, as something that is invisible, that um, can hide behind a smile, is pertinent and purposeful. And I also echo what, Pat, you were saying about millennials and Gen Z as a professor at a college. I am very forthright students who say it's um, mental health challenges, and I always am good about linking them up to resources and following up. But The conversations are out there, and I think it's important for us to be the facilitators of of more conversations and kind of probe into the discomfort and say, hey, it's okay. This is okay to talk about. This is what a lot of people experience. Chris, where do you teach? I am teaching at Metropolitan State University. And I um, recently hired part-time as an art therapist for the Suicide Survivor Club. So I am really passionate about being an advocate and making a difference and being there for those who have experienced loss. You know, there are the variables of experiences that we go through as suicide loss survivors and having the conversations to move through what might be shame or grief or sadness is, is crucial. Thank you for asking. Excellent. And Pat, I want to do a little plug if I could. Uh, Chris would love to have you come on. During the pandemic, I remodeled my basement into a TV studio and I started a show called Seriously Mental with Chris Shaw. And it's kind of like the Tonight Show where I get up and I do a uh, I do a monologue and then I have a guest come on and we interview and then we have a musical guest and we actually got picked up by the WB23 here in the Twin Cities, and that will begin airing September 10th, every Saturday from 4.30 to 5. Helen? Any chance of this uh, program ever getting onto YouTube? Yes, because what we'll do is once once we film the episodes and they air on those Saturdays, probably Monday, they'll hit our YouTube channel. Thank you. Yeah. Well, okay. As we wind down at the end of our discussion, Chris, thank you for your being here and your badass attitudes and the way you go at it, being a mental health advocate. 
just big respect and thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for your comments and your questions. You really made for an incredible discussion. This podcast is dedicated to those who left too soon and to those left behind. Thank you so much. Thank you.